Life is about moments and triggers, and I liken it to dealing with an opponent. So when you hop in the ring, like you have to make adjustments. Welcome to a very special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, featuring some of the most elite athletes on the planet. So you have to like prepare. You have to do things that other people aren't willing to do. Because when you go in that ring, you have to tell yourself, I may lose this fight, but I'm not gonna lose this fight because I wasn't in condition. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at my conversations with podcast guests who have redefined the limits of performance. As you'll soon see, the mindsets and habits of these elite level performers reveal lessons that are applicable not just in the world of sports, but also in the world of business. From the mindsets required to perform under pressure to what it takes to maintain a competitive edge, this episode is for those who play to win. No matter where you are, what you're doing, if you're broken, you're defeated, you can get up and do one more. And I don't know how many times you're gonna have to get up and do one more. And sometimes you're gonna have to get up and do one more alone, but I promise you, you can do it. And I I felt I had to do it myself. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. kick things off, we revisit our conversation with George Foreman III, undefeated pro boxer who retired with a perfect 16-0 record, trainer, fearless entrepreneur, and yes, son of two-time heavyweight champion George Foreman. While many believe that his athletic career was a planned legacy, George actually had a different type of motivation to step into the ring. I never felt any pressure to be a fighter. It was just, I was curious about it. I was just always curious about it. It's, it's a fun sport. And so never did it myself until I was in my mid-20s. But I remember Lennox Lewis, who's a professional boxer, retired legend. Um, I used to go to all the HBO fights and sit ringside um, when my father was commentating. And I, I was standing up as Lennox was walking into the ring and he walked past me. And I looked at him and I was like, he's not that big. So that was moment number one. Moment number two is Lennox Lewis's trainer, a guy named Emmanuel Stewart. He trained guys like Tommy Hearns, Vladimir Klitschko, and a bunch of other legendary fighters, he would see me at, you know, the lead up events and, and in the green room and all that. And he said, George, he told me that, George, let me have him. I can make a great champ out of him. And he was joking. Now that I know how hard boxing is, but I believed him. right? <laughs> and so I ballooned up to 300 pounds and um, I needed to get in shape. And I always wanted to do something. And my brother sees me like I played lacrosse. I was on varsity, but I like wasn't the best. You know, I started, I played basketball. Wasn't the best. I didn't start at basketball. Played football, started sometime when they felt bad for me. But like, I could do anything one-on-one really well, but I couldn't play team sports that well, like running plays and all that. And so I was in my mid-20s, had been working for my dad, managing him for almost five years at the time. Gained a lot of weight, wanted to lose weight. And I was like, let me try something new as a way to motivate me to get in shape. I'll try boxing. And I called my brothers up. And they've been teasing me, saying that there's no proof that you were ever a varsity athlete. That was actually a big motivator for me to box. 
because I went to prep boarding school. They were like, well, no one's ever seen you play sports. So there's no proof. You don't have like a, a letterman's jacket or whatever. So they do that at, where, at the school I went to. They give you a sweater. So I said, look, guys, if I have one amateur boxing match, will you guys shut up? That's how it started. And they agreed. And I won't carry through the rest of the story. But eventually I lost 80 pounds, committed to have an amateur boxing match. And then my dad stopped me and said, let me train you for six weeks, which turned into a year and another five years. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. Um, why, why do you why do you think he uh, he said that? Why do you think he pulled you aside and said, let me train you? Because I was uh, so at the time I was his business manager. We were traveling. We were at the Crystal Cathedral. He was doing a speaking for the, the minister there. And I was telling him, like, you know, I want to fight. And he actually was helping me trying to find make sure I match with somebody that we know we don't just show up in a random guy, you know, and people, other amateurs wouldn't fight me. Because typically when you have zero fights, you fight someone else's zero fights. And they're like, why in the world in Houston, where we're all from, would I have my fighter's first fight be against George Foreman's kid? Just doesn't make sense. So then he was like, well, why don't you have a pro fight? Because at least you know the person's actually going to show up, right, for the check. So I was like, cool. And he was like, okay, well, if you're going to fight pro, you got to let me train you. I was like, all right. And so um, he said, we're going to train for six weeks and you're going to have your fight and then it's going to be over. Six weeks turned into six weeks and it just kept on going. And I think I, I do remember my mother was uh, scared and she was like, you got to go down there and check on him. Right. And so I think he did. Once he influenced me to have that fight, he didn't want to be the reason I got hurt. And so he's like, I got to watch him. And then I can tell you for sure we were having fun. That's why six weeks turned into a year of training before my first fight. I think he enjoyed it because he loved the sport. And I loved it, too. So. But we never like we never, by the way, sat down and like had a, a meeting about it. He was like, yeah, let me train you for this first one. And then we just like woke up and it was like a year later at my first fight. He's about to shoot an infomercial with the Harrington's, Kevin Harrington and his brother. And I was telling him about the script and he was like, don't worry about that. Worry about your next fight. And I was like, there's your next fight. And he was like, yep, next month. And I was like, OK. And I just went home and ate food and like started training for another fight. There was no discussion. And George, I'd love for you to talk about what that what that training was like, because, you know, obviously with your father, it seems like there's no, you know, it's either going to be the best or nothing. And it wasn't just let's go lift some weights and let's go, you know, do some cardio. I think, you know, from a lot of what I heard about that training, it's almost like the Rocky, you know, type training and, and a lot of it physical, but also mental as well. It was all mental. I think you, you can't tap the mental unless you have um, driven the physical past what's appropriate then you tap into the mental, right? Everything else is just like being lazy or like concerned that you're going to hurt yourself and all that, which is healthy. You should be. But when we're trying to train the brain, you got to push the body to a place where, assuming you're hydrated, assuming, assuming you're rested, assuming you're in a safe place, maybe someone knows where you're at or, 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 or observing you, you push the body to a place where you can only move forward with the mind, right? And so that's what it was all about. So the first thing was 10, run 10 miles. And he kept asking me, like, I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to teach you anything until you run 10 miles. And I eventually had to do that with no preparation. He kept asking me, and I had just been sitting on the recumbent bike. We were traveling a lot. And um, he finally was like, you know what? Let's just go do it tomorrow. And he was like, do you have boots? I was like, nope. And he went and found a 13, size 13 and a half pair of boots at Famous Footwear. I was a size 14 and like almost 15. And he was like, let's go. He's like, I'll let you start off slow, but you cannot walk. And... Around mile seven, I'd never run more than three miles. Mile seven, I took off because he, he was behind me in a buggy and he was like, don't let your feet hit the front of this thing. And I took off for a mile. And I was like, I to this day, I don't know how in the world I did that. That was this. The body wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't doing anything. 
And then I recovered while jogging and then finished another three miles and did not realize that my heels were full on gushing, bleeding, right? Outside the boots and everything until the end, the mind, right? Hormones and so on and so forth. So I think he, the way he would explain it is I'm trying to put an ingredient in your brain that you're going to need because when you get to round 10, round 11, round 12, the body's tapped out, the mind takes over and we're trying to train your brain on how to do that and feel comfortable in that space. And I can tell you more and more about some of the challenges, but it was all about how do we build mentally this expectation that the body is not going to carry us there. And George, I know you're a humble guy, but I want to make sure that the, the people listening to this podcast know that your professional record was 16 and 0, 15 knockouts, one decision, but zero losses, zero draws. I'd love to know just kind of like what you learned from that experience. Just, you know, even just basically, you know, retiring undefeated. That you take your losses in the preparation. During preparation, take your losses there. I think you're going to have competition that you thought was going to be hard. My first fight, I didn't see the guy until we walked in, and my dad was like, he's going to do this to you, he's going to do that to you, and I don't know, you got to watch out for this. Like, he was nothing. And, I mean, as a fighter, he's a great human being. But um, I fought, like, four or five guys, like, where I was so afraid of them, and apparently, like, they didn't stand a really chance. And I fought a few guys I wasn't afraid for, afraid of, and they almost knocked me out, you know? One guy knocked me down. But they didn't call it a knockdown because I slept at the same time he hit me. <laughs> so my point is, like, you know, I won those fights. But the reason I won those fights is because I took my losses in the gym. I took my losses in the morning when I was running. Like, all my losses were in preparation. And the more I took my losses there, I feel like the more likely that I was prepared for the, the stuff you can't prepare for, right? You have to make adjustments, but you need confidence to make adjustments. So I, I'd say that's what it was all about. And through your experience, because I know there's a lot of principles that you took from boxing that, you know, that ultimately you also applied in building a business. And you saw even many of the students that, you know, that you taught and mentored. What, what were some of those? What were some of the things that you, you, know, you felt that applied in the boxing ring that also applied in, in life and, and even entrepreneurship? Uh, life is about moments and triggers. It's about moments, instances. Boxing is very much like that. And I liken it to dealing with an opponent. So when you hop, hop in the ring, like, especially if you're evenly matched, you can't just go out there and just do what you're going to do. Like, you have to make adjustments. And the fight is won by just like optimizing a website or optimizing your digital strategy or like you tried this, didn't work, but you did an A-B test or you like ran this subject line in an email against 20% of your list. And the other one against another 20% of your list. You picked the winner and ran that against the other 60%. That's what a fight's like, a real competitive fight. But you have to be prepared and have the knowledge to make those adjustments. You have to know what, like, I'll try this. If this doesn't work, I'll try this. Why did that work? All right, let me tweak that. Let me pull back. I'm a little too close. I'm a little too far. I think he was tired. Maybe he isn't tired. Let me try to figure out if he's tired. He is tired. Okay, well, I'm not going to sit on my stool. This, the whole preparation before the fight, even before the fight starts, is you're making adjustments based on every interaction with the person you're fighting. So I think that can be, you know, applied to anything, even you making adjustments against your own silliness. So I think how do you prepare to make adjustments? Like fatigue cannot be a thing, right? You have to prepare. Stamina is a boxing term. It's a, it's a term in general, but it's very centric to boxing. So you have to like prepare. You have to do things that other people aren't willing to do because when you go in that ring, you have to tell yourself, I may lose this fight, but I'm not going to lose this fight because I wasn't in condition or because this person was in better condition for than me, we're not going to lose it because we're tired. All right, let's take that off. 
all right, we're not going to lose this fight because we not got knocked out. There are ways to strengthen your body. It's a little thing called the posterior chain in your core and all these little things. And then defense so that you don't lose the fight because you can defend yourself. You can get back up. Right. So that takes this little thing called resilience. Like you can prepare for that. You can prepare, prepare for that mentally. You can prepare, prepare for that physically. So that has to be taken off the table. Stamina. Then I need resilience. Right. Thinking ability. Right. Thinking ability is very much about recovery. You have stamina, which is like, how long can I sustain what I'm doing? Recovery is how often can I exert myself and then recover and then exert myself and recover and exert myself and recover. If you can do that, then you can be really aggressive, trying different things, recover, try something else, recover, try something else. So I think it's all these things like I think in life, it just could not be more similar in boxing. If you can do those things, if you can have a great defense to make sure like I can protect myself at all times, whether I, maybe I can't land a punch, but I can protect myself at all times, you can stay in the fight for 12 rounds. And so I think the ability to not get tired, to recover when you try things that maybe didn't work or get the knockout, the ability to be re- resilient, to get up off the canvas if someone knocks you down, all these things give you this ever so precious thing that like Floyd Mayweather has it in the ring. I'm not talking about him as an individual. That's none of my business. Um, Muhammad Ali had a great, had this. I think my dad had it. He would say he did. Uh, Sugar Ray Robinson had it. Michael Jordan had it. LeBron James had all these people had Kobe. They had this, um, it's a privilege. Thinking ability, thinking ability. And I don't care how like smart you are or how intelligent you are. If you can't go like this, Let me take a break. Let me sit in here defensively and think about what I want to do. Let me try this. Nah, that didn't work. Let me try something else. If you can't sit and do that and then remember what worked and optimize on top of it because you're tired, because you're discouraged, because you're scared, because you're insecure, because you didn't prepare. If you can't walk in in every round of that fight, have your thinking ability, then you're just not going to win. doesn't matter how smart you are. I've seen the best fighters in the world go in there unprepared. For, for all the things we talked about, and they didn't preserve their ability to think under intense pressure. And um, that pressure could come from your wife. That pressure could come from your family and some of these lineage, you know, lineage families where they, uh, su- they have succession and all that. That pressure could come from your, your boss, the people below you trying to overthrow you in a large corporate. It could come from anywhere, the bank, <laughs> financing, COVID, all these things you need to be able to think. And it's too late if you haven't prepared. So you got to be ready. The same principles that define elite athletes also apply in business, in the courtroom, and everywhere in between. Mark Beaumont has pushed the limits of endurance over the past two decades. Among other world records, he remains the fastest person to have cycled around the planet, a journey that spanned 18,000 miles. We began our conversation by discussing the impetus behind Mark's obsession with adventure and his competitive drive. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because I can look back from, I guess, I feel like the first big chapter of my career was being an athlete and a broadcaster, uh, but I also had these other interests. And it's very clear that ever since I cycled across Scotland when I was 12 years old, so what's that, like 25 years ago now, there's a chronology. It looks professional. It looks almost inevitable. It looks, you know, things have got bigger and faster and better and all these world records, you know, have taken me to 130 nations and territories now. But that's what life feels like when you look back on it. The way you live your life, it's scary. Yeah, there's uncertainty. You can only see the next horizon 
And when I was a kid, I had such little perspective on what life could be. I was homeschooled until I was 12. So my two buddies were my two sisters. I lived on a hill uh, farm in the foothills of you know the highlands of Scotland. So I'm sure your audience are just imagining like Braveheart and like wilderness. Well, it's not far off, you know, it was kind of kind of rural. So if you don't go to a playground, you don't socialize, you never go to clubs. Like I just didn't have that sort of framework. I didn't watch television. It was quite an alternative uh, upbringing. I guess what I did have from a very, very early age was a real sense of self and independence because guess what? I was working on the farm. I had a great work ethic because I was out there grafting every day. You know, there was 60 goats to milk. There was 13 horses to muck out. There was 200 laying hens to collect the eggs from. There was a farm to run. So I spent most of my time being physical and being outside. And um, yeah, I didn't mind my own company. So when I decided to cycle across Scotland at the age of 12, it didn't seem that crazy. And you can kind of see how, how over the years, these ambitions got bigger and bigger. And when I left, uh, university at the age of 22 I cycled around the planet the first time that's an 18,000 mile race and uh, I've been doing it professionally ever since but that's hindsight for you the way I lived life like everyone I didn't have a clue what I was doing I was making it up what about the, the first time you got on a bike did you have any any sense of just feeling like hey this is a good fit I'm pretty good at this like what, what was your experience right, right out of the gate when I was a kid I was just a kid you know I was I was I wasn't uh, trying to compete with my friends because I my sisters were my friends. I didn't have that social construct. I was never coached. I was never in a club. I wasn't trained in a normal sense. You know, most professional bike riders come up through the system. There was no system. My main passion was horse riding because my mum was big in the horse world. I was pretty close to the ski slope, so skiing was another big passion of mine. Do you know what? Adventure sport for me was more about wild places and journeys than it was about performance. For most of my life, the, all the wild man experiences have simply been using my physical ability to get places, you know, whether that was a boat or swimming or it was never really about beating anyone. It was always just about how to efficiently cross landscapes. And I've taken that to the extreme by breaking the world record for the length of Africa going from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, climbing the highest peaks in the Americas. You know, I've taken it to the extreme for sure. But for me, it was more about great journeys than about being a performance athlete. So was it a good fit? I guess I was physically able. I'm quite a big guy. I'm tall for a bike rider. But because I was never playing soccer or I was never playing hockey, I'd never really built that side of my athletic career. Whereas climb a mountain, run a marathon, cycle across a continent. You know, I was always good at that stuff, but more because of the wanderlust of travel. And let's get to, you know, 2008. So in 2008, as many know, like you broke the world record for, you know, a circumnavigational bike ride. So basically a trip around the world. So basically 18,000 miles. And I believe the record prior to this was around, I think, 276 days or so. You broke the record, I mean, almost 100 days. You, you, you got it in 194. And how did you, even, I, mean, I imagine you trained for this, but what did that training look like, you know, just leading up to it? Well, I mean, I know you're a, a, a bike rider and, and it's interesting when you look back to your early days, like I thought I was being professional. I thought I knew my stuff. I didn't have a clue. You know, I didn't have a clue. My bike didn't fit properly. I got tendonitis because, you know, I wasn't set up right. 
you know, I would just go out and do massive rides thinking that was good training. Whereas, you know, clearly you need to train smart, not just train long. And I was never giving myself time off. So I was overtraining. I was a kid and you can make mistakes and get away with it when you're that age. When you're 38, uh, you got to be a bit more structured about these things. But it's interesting when it comes to endurance because so many athletes don't really come into their own until their 30s and 40s because it's about the psychology, the experience, as much as it is the the raw physicality. If it's about being a, a crit racer or a tour rider, for sure, you know, you need to have that raw power and maybe youth on your side. But endurance, ultra endurance, adventure, anyone could do that. Young, old, male, female, it's more about your life experience, your resilience, your ability to suffer, sleep deprivation, just the overall toolkit as well as that physicality. And it's not about how good am I today, but how good am I tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month, and just that ruthless consistency to perform. But I mean, riding around the planet the first time was just awesome. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to go on professional expeditions now for over 15 years but I'll never replicate the raw emotions and the excitement of the first time, you know, the first time just being out there, being so scared. The more you go on in life, the more you know, and you look for that rawness, but you kind of know too much. And it was pre-social media as well. So I was out there with a camera filming it at arm's length. It makes me feel very old, but you know, Twitter and Facebook, it just wasn't a thing 15 years ago. And so I was capturing this journey for the BBC in the UK. I would just, sit in my tent at the end of a long day and just chat to that camera for half an hour. It was my buddy on the road. So it wasn't just the the bike race, but it was also the opportunity to share it with an audience. And that's what really launched my career, you know, capturing the journey. Now, I know there's the things that you could obviously control, which is like your effort, for example, the planning you did in advance of this. But, you know, during this ride, even in 2008, you encountered a great deal of adversity, too. I mean, I remember reading about like in Louisiana and so on. You were involved in a, you know, in a car crash and then you got robbed later in the same day. I mean, if you could speak to some of that. <laughs> you're not a million miles from there right now, are you? Um, you're a little bit further further east. I was so excited by that point. I'd cleared Texas. I got to the, the Louisiana and I thought, hey, I'm done. I'm across the US and I'm in the last 3,000 miles. I've got a record in the bag. And then I had one of the worst days I've ever had on a bike where I I got um, hit by a car at a crossroads, buckled the front end, front end of the bike. I was pretty smashed. I uh, broke the windscreen of the car. And then that evening, in the town of Lafayette, trying to get things sorted, I was mugged. Can you imagine getting in a car crash at lunchtime and then mugged that evening? That was a bad day. I tell you what, equal and opposite. There was a lot of friendship of strangers. People really looked after me after that. So I don't want to be down on uh, the good people of Louisiana here. It was just a bad day and a run of bad luck. But these things can happen at any time. I've been in more tight corners than most. I've been in some really dangerous situations where I nearly lost my life. I've seen people pay that ultimate price. And it's not about whether stuff will go wrong in life, but it's how you react. And not to mention also, I think you also struggle with like dysentery during during this ride. I mean, I know now you're, you're talking about these things looking back, right? Obviously, you, you got through them and so on. But I imagine you know, at the young age of 22 with so many unknowns and so on, like were there any times during this ride that you thought about essentially just, just giving up? I think when you're at your lowest ebb on an expedition, and I guess I've done this so many times, when you end up in a really, really tough spot where rationally you should give up, you could give up you know, you're in, I mean, dysentery is a great example. If anyone's like had serious 
uh, DMV before is like being seriously unwell. And the idea of riding a bike is just, but by the time you get into those places, you're normally so fighting. You're fighting not to get to the finish line and the big dream of the record, but you're fighting against stopping. Momentum is your greatest friend. So you don't have the perspective of, oh, should I give up? Should I quit? Uh, is this that moment where I'm at that crossroads? It's not a moment in time when you're thrown into. There's normally a journey to get you to those really hard places. And so when you're there, you're just fighting. And it's interesting when you look back on them, you go, how, how did I do that? Like, how did I keep going in that extraordinarily difficult situation? And the reality is you've just got a different perspective. The only thing worse than going slowly is stopping. And when you're struggling to find momentum in your project, whether that's, you know, a big expedition ride or, or whatever you're doing in life, you're just the fear of failure. I'm not like some super inspired person. Take my second around the world, around the world in 80 days, which was, you know, much, much, much faster, riding 240 miles a day. I was out my bed at 3.30 every morning on the bike at four, every single day for two and a half months, riding 240 miles. I'm not an inspired person at 3.30 in the morning. I'm not somebody that like, I'm just freakishly positive, but I'm accountable. You know, tell me the consequence of failing. If I fail, everyone fails. And I've got a big team working for me and these are expensive projects. So it's interesting, you know, don't give me some motivational speech or like high fives. Like I just don't work that way. I just think we've all got mental health and you've got to call a bad day bad. You've got to talk, call a good day good. And you've got to, you can look back on your successes and sort of have pride in how you fought. But when you're in it, you've got to call it what it is. And there's no point in sugarcoating stuff and saying, oh, it's all about positivity and being motivated. Well, guess what? Some days you're not motivated and you've still got to get the job done. And on those days, what, what keeps you going? Maybe that's the hardest question of all. If the sum total of my ambition was to pay the mortgage and um, you know have a pension pot, I clearly wouldn't have lived the life that I've lived. I've done difficult things for a living. I don't know how to answer that. I'm scared of existing. I'm scared of just, not for the fame. Okay, I've got a profile over here in the UK, but like not for the fame of it or the business you can make out of it. I'm really, I think I'm what I'm most intimidated by. Maybe it comes from my formative years of being homeschooled and then, you know, having a tough time in high school. But I, I don't like the idea of just being a number. And that's not an ego statement. I just, I like making time count. I like doing significant stuff. I like for my own sense of purpose and impact in the world with my friends, with my family, my community, my, my work. I like to, I like to create stuff which, you know, really punctuates time. What's the point in life? It's about creating memories. It's about creating memories. So the thing that scares me most is just existing. And I know that's a bit probably too, too broad reaching, but it's the only way I can answer that question. How much of this did you learn about yourself just through these rides? How much of that self-awareness did you have before you went on these long rides to then actually learning this through that process, that experience? I mean, I, I guess it's a combination of the above. The formative years matter. You know, you've got to have a sense of independence to be able to do these things. I mean, I think living life with one eye in the mirror is a pretty good metaphor for the fact that you're out there, you're interacting, you're trying to do stuff, but you've got to have the self-awareness to go, why would I care? What does it matter? What am I trying to do here? Like, am I, and that sort of intrinsic motivation that you're talking about there, nature, nurture, 
I look at my kids, I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, two daughters, and they're totally different existence to mine. You know, we, we live in a city, they're super sociable. They don't have the same environment that they're growing up in. But the only thing I hope that I can give them is a sense of independence. I think it's really, really important to be able to, you know, assimilate and, you know, fit in. And But, uh, but the independence of mind to do things you're passionate about, it's interesting because that independence often gets squeezed out of kids at school, whereas it becomes your greatest superpower in adult life. I, I, I see, I, you know, I work with people my age and older who still act like they're in a playground. If everyone's wearing brown shoes, they want to wear brown shoes. And I'm like, well, if you want to wear black shoes or pink shoes, wear pink shoes. And I think that that ability to not care too much, you know, you're not being disruptive and being a maverick for the sake of it, but that ability to, if you have sort of a strong North Star in terms of what you believe is important, to not care too much if other people don't agree with you. True game changers refuse to abide by the status quo and instead forge their own path. Our next game changer, Matt Frazier, is one of the most dominant athletes on the planet. He won the CrossFit Games five consecutive years in a row, setting record upon record and earning the title of the fittest man on earth. But before all the podiums, what got Matt into CrossFit in the first place? So when, when I was training at the Olympic Education Center, it's in northern Michigan, Marquette, Michigan. It's usually the feeder system into the Olympic Training Center. So the Olympic Training Center, all you do is train. That's it. That's your only requirement. The Olympic Education Center, you're required to carry a full course load in school and train. And so, you know, I was there, but I knew I wanted to do mechanical engineering and that school didn't have it. They had engineering technician. So all I did was take math and physics, the stuff that I knew, all right, when I transfer out of the school, it's going to transfer over to whatever school I end up at. And then right at the end of it, the funding for the Olympic Education Center got cut. Now, I have a talk with my parents and they're like, hey, you can either take out student loans or you can move back to Vermont and go to UVM because my mom worked at the university. And so I got tuition remission. So that was an easy easy decision, like either go in debt or just move to a way better school that has the degree that I'm going after for free. So I did that. This is after I've already retired from weightlifting. So now I'm just focused on school. I did a double major. I did mechanical engineering, and then I did a management degree, a minor in math and a minor in business, and had no intentions of doing anything weightlifting oriented or athletic, anything. It was just like, nope, I'm focused on school now. And I'm probably four or five years behind all my peers because I put life on hold for my weightlifting career. So I'm a little bit older than everyone in class. I don't have the same interests as anyone. So it was just lonely. I didn't feel like I fit in. I just worked my ass off in school. I think all it was, was I just kind of gained the freshman 15. I was not happy with where I was in life. So, you know, just eating for pleasure, as dumb as that sounds. But I just started gaining weight. You know, I went from working out twice a day for years to nothing. And so not only was I, I didn't have the physique I used to have, but I didn't have the direction or the drive or the outlet. So I just figured, okay, I need to start doing something physical. And so I just looked up CrossFit near me. And in, I lived in Colchester, Vermont, and there was one in Williston. And so for Olympic weightlifters, you know that CrossFits have the equipment you need to try to find an Olympic weightlifting gym in the U.S. Pff, 
there's a dozen in the country, but a CrossFit gym, they're on every, every corner. And so I just walked in and I was like, Hey, like, can I use your barbells and plates? You know, like, uh, I have no interest in doing CrossFit. I just want to work out. I'll stay in the back corner. I won't interrupt anyone. And they're like, yeah, yeah, have at it. Do, do whatever you want. And so I just was going into the CrossFit gym just to do Olympic weightlifting. And one of the girls that trained, she was a competitor. She was always like trying to coerce me into doing CrossFit workouts. And so, you know, it started out with a CrossFit workout that would, that was just Olympic weightlifting. It was like 30 reps for time. And I would do it. And I'm like, is that good? Is that bad? Like, how does my score chalk up? And the owner of the gym, I think, saw the potential in me and he signed me up for my first competition. So I did it. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do. I'm having to ask him to coach me through everything. And I ended up winning the competition and I made a couple hundred bucks. Like the prize was a couple hundred cash. And I just went, oh, for a full-time college student, a couple hundred bucks goes a long way. And so I was like, hey, are there more competitions like this? Like, is this a normal thing? And they're like, yeah, you can hit one every weekend if you want. And I was like, all right, instead of getting a part-time job or something to have some walking around money, I'll just compete in CrossFit. And yeah, so it just started kind of going around the local circuit. And I looked at it like a part-time job. I looked at it as like, all right, if I can pick up a couple hundred here, a couple grand there, like for a broke college student, when, you, when you're eating ramen noodles and you want to go to a movie once a week, a couple hundred bucks does the trick. <laughs> It's always been interesting to me because, you know, you made your debut, like first CrossFit Games in 2014, right? Finished second place and then second place in 2015. But how would you describe the difference between how you felt with each one? Because it seems like the 2015 one was the one that really pissed you off. Yeah. It's kind of funny, you know, exact same results, same competition, same placement, second place both times, but drastically different emotions tied to each medal. Uh, In 2014, it was my rookie year. I didn't know much about the sport. I wasn't dedicating much time to it. But the biggest thing was I had zero expectations going into it. So going in and getting second place, I'm doing backflips over. I can't believe how incredible this is. I'm I'm on cloud nine this whole time. And then first place guy is retiring. I'm in second place. And I figure I'm a shoe in. You know, all I gotta do is show up and and I'm going to win it. And so, you know, the whole year was just cut corners, you know, bad diet, terrible sleep schedule, training inconsistently, not in a good mental headspace. And I show up and get the exact same results. And they just put me into a spiral. I left that competition not knowing if I ever wanted to do it again. I didn't even go into the gym for a couple months. Yeah, I didn't know if I wanted to ante up again and put my chips in for another try because then I was like, there's a real opportunity that I could dedicate years and years of my life to this and never succeed. Looking back now, I couldn't be more thankful for that second second place finish because it was the one that made me change my habits. If I had won in 2015 while eating terribly and not working hard and all these things, well, I would have continued those bad habits. I would have been rewarded for cutting corners and continue doing them. And then getting my ass kicked in 2015, it made me either shit or get off the pot, either dedicate yourself and give everything to this or go away. Thankfully, I decided, okay, like I'm going to do one year of dedication because after the 2015, the part that was eating me alive was I didn't think second place was what I was capable of, but I knew it's what I deserved because I left the competition thinking, 
what if my diet was better? What if I trained consistently? What if I was in a better, healthier relationship? All these what ifs. And so that that's where it came from for 2016 was like, I'm not going to have a single what if. I'm going to set up my situation so that I, if I show up in 2016 and get second place again, or if I get 10th place, there's no what ifs. It's what I deserve. And I hoped that was going to be enough to sleep well at night. You know, even if I don't win, the effort that I put in is going to be good enough for me to be proud of. And when you came into that third games in 2016, like you said, I mean, it was the, the, the largest margin of victory in the history of the games. And then the following year, you got first place again with an even larger margin of victory. And then the following year, you did even better. So like you're, you're getting better every single year. And I imagine that's starting to, you know, to dawn on people. But then 2019 comes around and this was, this was an interesting year, right? I remember you faced a, a bit of adversity and a questionable situation, right? But at the same time, it, it wasn't this huge margin of victory. You were almost coming from behind then. Entire, their entire games. Yeah, 2019, you know, there, there was a couple different factors that played into it. You know, so the, in 2019, they went with a format in the competition that it was just out of left field. Every year, they're changing the rules, they're changing the qualifying procedures, they're changing the scoring. It really puts you in a test of like, okay, who can accept the things that they cannot change. It's all right, you know, what is the scoring system? Cool. I'm trying not to argue. I'm trying not to let it rent space in my head. I'm not listening to rumors. I wait until I hear the facts of what it is. And then I put my attack plan together. And so, you know, they announced the scoring system and they're doing cuts throughout the week of like, after event four, we're cutting down to the top 20 athletes. After event five, we're cutting down to the top 10. There's nothing I can do about it. It's not an ideal. I don't, I don't think it worked well. I think it looked terrible. And I think it negatively affected the scoring in terms of like you could afford a bad, a bad finish early on. And then you hope that your strength showed up later in the week. And but it was it was a great mental test of okay, this isn't what you want. This isn't ideal. This doesn't work well for you, but you don't have a choice. Deal with it. So, you know, there's a combination of the scoring system. I got hit with a pretty rough penalty early on that you know it stripped i think it was like 30 or 40 points and you know a, a winning event is 100 points so it was a pretty big hit but then once again by the end of the weekend i was thankful it all happened because the three years prior to that when i've won it was by a large large margin of victory and so people started thinking that oh he he only competes well when he doesn't have any pressure he doesn't do well under pressure and I remember thinking, hearing people say these things and telling them, you know, just because you've never seen me compete under pressure doesn't mean I'm not good at it. Be better. Put me under pressure. And so then it happened. I remember the specific event. I remember where I was standing. I remember everything about that. And I was down by 50 points. And I had a great opportunity to gain a large chunk of those points back. And all I heard was the criticisms. All I was hearing was the commentators, the other competitors saying that I don't do well under pressure. And I remember telling myself like, all right, good, good. They say you don't do well under pressure. Let's show them. Let's shut them up. You know, this is an opportunity that you haven't been put in before. Let's rise to the occasion. And it's a very freeing feeling having your back against the wall because you're already failing. You can't get worse. Just swing for the fences and try to connect and knock it over the fence. And uh, a moment like that was great because then it, it was an opportunity. Like this, the last weakness that people have seen in me, 
this is the one situation that I haven't been in. I get to prove it to everyone that, yo, I'm good at this too. Yeah. So, you know, it, that one worked out in some ways it was stressful. In some ways it was very freeing of there's no pressure on me. I'm in second place. All I can do is go up. So it was nice leaving that competition, knowing that like, okay, I don't have to be in the lead going into the final event. I don't have to be in the lead by a hundred points to, to win or perform. I can do that too. So Matt, you, you go on, you win the CrossFit Games five years in a row. Why do we consider the most dominant athlete ever in the sport? I mean, you're, you weren't just winning, you were, you were dominating. And the most impressive thing to me is that these are elite athletes. Like these are some of the top athletes in the world and you're not beating them by a narrow margin. You're, I mean, you're dominating. I'm curious, like, why do you think you had such dominance in CrossFit? Like, what do you believe that you were doing differently? I don't think it can boil down to any one thing. I think there was a whole laundry list of things that I were, that I was doing and no single one of them on their own would probably be a noticeable difference. But, you know, you start accumulating 20, 30, 40 of these different habits over years and years. Now they start to compound. Now they're, now they're adding up. It all came from a coach that I had early on kind of told me like, your training is not special. Everyone is doing what you're doing in the gym. And I, at first I took that as, well, no, I thought what I was doing in the gym was special. And he's like, no, everyone's doing hard rowing intervals. Everyone's squatting heavy. Everyone's doing everything you're doing. You need to find the 1% gains elsewhere that they're not doing. And so trying to find those little areas of like, all right, the best recovery tool that has ever existed is sleep. You know, it's so simple, but so many people take it for granted. They don't execute on it as well as they should. So I was like, okay, not only am I going to have, take my sleep very seriously, but how can I make it a little bit better than everyone else's? So, you know, setting up my room to be basically like an incubator of the perfect temperature, the perfect light, the perfect mattress, the perfect everything, the warmups, the cool downs in training, the time in between training, how I'm fueling myself in between training sessions, during training sessions, setting up my life so that I have zero stress. I don't think about anything business-wise. I don't think about anything outside of the gym. So, you know, whether that's surrounding myself with the right people that are willing to take those things off my plate or setting them up so they're a non-factor in my life. It's countless things like that where, yeah, if you do one of those things for one day, you're going to notice no difference. One of those things over an entire year, yeah, you might notice a little something, but it's not, you can't say it's definitive, but you're doing 30 or 40 of these things over multiple years. Well, that that's where you're setting records. And even stuff as foolish as I use a box cutter every day to open packages and then, all right, the three weeks before competition, I don't use a box cutter anymore because what if two weeks before the games, I cut my thumb? Everything we do with the barbell, we use a hook grip. So, you know, if I have a big slice of my thumb, I can't hook grip as comfortably or, you know, the blood's going to make the bar slippery. Things as foolish sounding as that, it's that one in a million chance, but I'm not willing to take that chance. The big thing was having a home life that was you know, stress-free and ideal to cater to this crazy lifestyle, wake up, eat, sleep, train, and that's it. 
So I have a manager that deals all the business stuff. I have a fiance that deals with everything in my personal life so that I woke up with one goal and one goal only. And that was to be the best competitor there ever was. A clear vision and a relentless, no excuses commitment are among the keys to elite level performance and are what differentiates the good from the great. James Lawrence, also known as the Iron Cowboy, is an extreme endurance athlete who's regarded by many as the toughest man alive. After completing 50 Ironman length triathlons in 50 consecutive days in 50 states, James upped the ante, completing 101 Ironmans in 101 consecutive days. What could possibly possess someone to do such a thing? It's interesting you say that and have that perception because it's so true. Like I, I mentioned earlier, we speak for a living. That's how I feed my family is through speaking and coaching. Trust me, I don't get paid to suffer. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's paying us to do that. And so it's all perspective on, based on where you are in your life, right? And so I knew we were in the in the heavy stages of preparation for the 100, and, but nobody knew about it because we hadn't made the announcement. And then I was speaking two audiences about the 50. And in my head, I was like, it was almost laughable because they obviously thought it was a big deal. And it is a big deal, but it's from their perception, right? But like just looking at raw numbers, right? The 50 was a seven-week campaign to cover 7,000 miles. And that's insane for the person that's coming off the couch or that's done one Ironman or anything like that. But being the person in the driving seat that has a decade worth of experience, and now you're staring down the barrel of a 14-week campaign that's 14,000-plus miles, yes, it becomes laughable. But that's the beautiful part, right? When you're in the middle of something and you're pushing your limits wherever you are, it should be hard. You should be pushing it. And then success happens, and you look back and you grow, and more becomes. It's like super, super hard math. When you're in fifth grade, you can't really conceptualize really, really hard math. When you're doing fifth grade math in fifth grade, holy hell, that's the hardest. That is so damn hard. But now when you learn how to do calculus, when you're doing calculus, like fifth grade math is pretty damn laughable, right? And so it's all based on where you are on your journey and what experience and and stepping stones you've successfully navigated through. If you don't have those stepping stones, you're setting yourself up for for a disaster to happen. So, so what does the preparation look like mentally, physically, when, when you're about to embark on something like this? Even going back to like the the fifty you know, Ironmans, fifty days, and fifty states. Like, what what does that like even physical preparation look like? Mental preparation? Yeah, you you can't prepare for a fifty day challenge, a hundred day challenge. You just try to get in the best possible shape, the most durable physique that you can, because you're it's a battle of attrition. You have to learn how to eat on the move. You got you to figure out how to consume that amount of calories while moving, while breaking your body down. You have to teach your body to continue to perform under duress, under injury. So the preparation is a lot of swimming, a lot of running, a lot of biking, a lot of strength training. But the mental side of stuff, it's a lifetime piece of work. To me, I look back at my entire life and my mental training started as a younger kid in athletics and then went into wrestling and then went into trying to figure out the sport of golf and then triathlon. These are all individual sports that whether you win or you lose, it's your fault. And you really start to, you know, it's my choice to come back and work on this craft and get better at it. And, and okay, this is where my weakness is. How do I become a more well-rounded athlete? And so really the, the mental side of stuff, I didn't do a lot of preparation going into the hundred, like as far as specific prep, it's because I've been building and flexing that muscle for a very long time. And now it becomes, okay, when the time comes, I now have the experience just to tap into that. And I'm going to continue to grow that muscle even during the experience. And it was, it was pushed to the max during the hundred because, you know, it's a long, long journey. And we, we had to 
you stay mentally tough for a quarter of a year and you you get into a protective state to where your your mind is so powerful that it's protecting you from feeling everything that you're doing and it is almost like you're in a traumatic state and then your your brain is just like I'm going to protect you and then I know we're going to talk about it what happens after that you come out of that state um, after something like this big goal in your life happens how do you deal with that letdown that come down or the aftermath so every day that you're doing this, whether it's the swim, the bike, or the, or the run, like what are you thinking about while you're doing it? I'm just curious. I'm like a 112-mile bike ride every single day. Like, I mean, are you listening to music? Are you meditating? Like, how, how do you get through each one? Yeah, many, many different things. One, daydreaming. I think daydreaming is super important. You go through phases of that. You go through um, education or learning, listening to a podcast. You go through just mindless energy bump of music. And sometimes you just want it quiet, and then you're starting to plan your future. You you're, you're going through your past. I mean, your mind can do a lot of different things. And and for me, the biggest thing was I used, especially that bike portion, an opportunity to to multitask and use use and strengthen my mind and educate myself. I listened to a podcast or two every single day and just tried to learn while I was out there. I'm like, I'm sitting here anyways. I'm unconsciously, consciously, you know, turning the wheels over. I know how to do this. And let's just see if I can occupy my mind so that it can get through it. And you can't look too far ahead, right? When you're on day 15, you're broken. You can't say, oh, I only have 85 more to go. It's just your brain, your brain will collapse on itself. And so you just really have to learn how to occupy your mind in the moment so that you, you are ever present all the time. And And once you figure out how to be right there in that moment, and you take care of that moment, everything in the future has to take care of itself because you're always in that space. And, and how many times do you think about giving up? Like on, you know, as, as a percentage of the number of days that you're doing this, like, is this something that, you know, once a week or, you know, or only towards the tail end or is this happening more frequently? It's not a question of like, or thought of I'm going to give up. It's like, how much longer do I have to endure? Right. And so it was never a question of I'm going to give up. It's it's how do I manage or how do I cope? Right. It was more figuring that out, because as soon as you start to go down the path of of darkness and the thoughts come in and, OK, I'm going to give up, you're going to come up with a reason to validate that thought process. And you want to avoid that at all costs, uh, because as soon, that's a slippery slope. As soon as you start going down that road, and that's why it's so important to put an unbelievable team around you that can kind of tell when you're wavering, when you're faltering, when you're struggling. And I'm not saying you're not going to struggle or waver on the journey that you're on because you are, because we are human and it's just a natural part of the growth process. Like you're going to struggle, you're going to question. And that's why you have to have a really good reason why you're doing things. You have to have a great center or team around you. Your ethos has to be super strong. And that's the reason why you're doing what you're doing. And if you have a really strong ethos, you can always revert back to that and say, okay, if these are the, 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 the things that I truly believe in to my core, will this decision I'm about to make align with that core belief system? And so before anybody starts any big project, I think you should really sit down and figure out, okay, what's my ethos? What's my core values? What do I stand for? And then really commit and buy into that, those statements. And then every question you have on a tough journey becomes, very easy to answer because you just revert back to what my ethos and what I stand for is. Because you will not make rational decisions when you're broken mentally, physically, when you're fatigued. And you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm not of sound mind. What was my core values and system when I was in a sound mind? And revert back to that. That's the easiest way to make decisions in a tough moment. 
And during all of this, I'm just curious, how, how's it been for your family? I know they've been very supportive, but have there been times when they're like, James, like, you know, you don't have to do this. And, you know, has, has it been tough on them? It's been tough on them, but it's also been a blessing on them. It gives us a lifestyle that we want. And ultimately, it helps them all grow mentally in their own ways because we all had different roles on the journeys. My wife plays a very different role than I do. We communicate what those roles are. And just like it's hard for me physically and mentally, it's hard for her emotionally and mentally to support me and what I'm doing. We, we play very different but important roles. And, and I think she's an amazing guest on podcasts as well because she provides a very different perspective than what I provide, even though it was the same journey. My kids the same way. I mean, we didn't just win the kid lottery. I mean, they are exceptional kids because of the, the examples that Sonny and I try to set and, and the high level that we go through and the lessons that they learn through the adversity and the hardship. They fully embrace it and they, they recognize that they're exceptional students and kids and everything because of the adversity that they've, they've gone through with us as a family. And so, yeah, without a question, it's hard. Um, but that's, that's what develops and grows um, a, a society. And it's a, a huge problem of why we have so much softness and entitlement in, in the school systems and in the culture that we have surrounding us right now. It's a massive problem. There needs to be more struggle and adversity that that is intentionally taken head on. So actually on that note, you're not encouraging them to do 100 Ironman triathlons, but you are encouraging them to do difficult things and to go through periods of adversity. Why do you feel that's so important? Well, take a look at the 2020 pandemic, for an example. Um, you could take a look around and go, not handling it well, no experience mentally. They've never done anything hard in their lives. Handling it like a champ, they let me look at their resume. Okay, they've done some significant things in their life. They were ready for a moment like this. And so just to be ready for the unpredictable nature of life, it's important to take ourselves, our minds, our bodies, to be physically fit, to be mentally healthy, to be emotionally strong for when something like 2020 happens. That was unprecedented. But I'm telling you, everybody could take a step back right now and they could go, okay, handled well, didn't handled well, dumpster fire, train wreck, incredible outcome, you know, all these things. And it's everybody experienced the same epidemic, but we all experienced it in a different, unique way to ourselves. And I'm not demeaning anybody's struggles or their their capacity too. I'm saying from an observatory standpoint, it was very interesting to see the way some people handled it versus some people that maybe didn't handle it very well. And I could probably draw a pretty good correlation between that and their previous experience doing intentionally hard things because everybody's heart is different, right? We're all born with a certain baseline, but it's I believe it's our responsibility not only to feed our bodies, to be healthy, to be active, but to do the same thing with our minds. Well, in order for our bodies to be healthy, we have to stress them. Same thing with our minds. You have to stress your mind in order for it to be a healthy, functioning part of who we are. And the easy road is not always the best way to go. My wife always says, look, if I've got two paths, I always intentionally choose the harder one because I want to continually challenge my mindset and my growth. And uh, I look at that as, as incredibly inspirational and, and a good motivator for me to, to be that same example. Like, okay, look, I've got two ways to go here. This one's going to challenge me a little bit more. I think I'm going to choose that, intentionally choose that route so that I can develop and grow and progress. And coming back to like the 100, it actually was the 101. Like, I guess, could you talk me through like, what was the reason why you added on that extra day after finishing the 100? It was a decision that wasn't made at the beginning. It was a decision that was made three, four days before um, the actual 100. And I just kept getting the feeling. I do a lot of things off of how I feel, gut feeling, emotion, inspiration. And I just kept getting the feeling you have to do one more. 
you can't just teach a principle. You have to be the example. And the reality is everybody struggles. We all have moments where we feel like we're completely broken, where we're backed into a corner, where we cannot conceptualize getting up and facing the day, facing our challengers, facing the adversity. It's just too much. And I I felt I would be a hypocrite if I didn't get up when I was broken, exhausted, when the goal was achieved to not go do one more. Um, Because the reality is, is I, I promise you, no matter where you are, what you're doing, if you're broken, you're defeated, you can get up and do one more. And I don't know how many times you're going to have to get up and do one more. And sometimes you're going to have to get up and do one more alone. But I promise you, you can do it. And I, I felt I had to do it myself if, if I wanted to be a person that would eventually want to talk about, look, you've, you've all got one more in you. You can do one more rep. I, I felt I, I had to do it in order to be warranted to be able to speak about it. I want to give a huge thank you to George, Mark, Matt, and James for joining us on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast and for sharing their insights and experiences with us. Regardless of whether you're walking into the gym or walking into the courtroom, we can all take away something from their habits, mindsets, and uncompromising drive to win at the highest level. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be revisiting our conversations with some of the most renowned marketing experts on the planet. Tactics come and tactics go. And these little things that'll work for a moment, these little tricks, these little hacks, Those are inefficiencies in the market that close up and they go fast. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is who's the person who's able and willing to spend the most to get a customer. I mean, that's it. That is what marketing at the end of the day comes down to. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.